Christ Church, New Malden, Sunday the 5th of February 2023, 11 o'clock service. Tim Davis speaking on Outsiders Come to God, the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, one of the benefits of this sermon series, this series looking at outsiders coming to God, is that hopefully um, some of the people, some of the characters that we encounter in the series um, might resonate with you. You might identify with some of them. You know, women, people who are poor, people who are wealthy, people who convert to Christianity from other faiths. Um, and so I thought I'd make sure uh, at the start of thought that at least hopefully we've got some people here today who are expecting to identify with the subject of today's talk, the Ethiopian eunuch. Not a lot of hands going up in church today. Right, I'll slightly change the talk. Uh, no, I can't say I'm all that surprised. Um, although it might come as a surprise to you um, when I say that this particular passage has actually resonated with me for a great many years. Uh, I think back to about 10 years ago when I was considering going forward for training to be a licensed lay minister. And I had to attend a vocations forum at the offices of Southwark Diocese. Uh, where we got to think about you know, where we saw our potential ministry, what we might be thinking about doing. And in preparation for this day, uh, we were, all the people attending were given a selection of Bible passages, and they had to choose one of them, which particularly spoke to them, made them sort of spoke to them about their journey of faith, their journey towards ministry up to that point. And I chose that particular passage from Acts with Philip encountering the Ethiopian eunuch. I should make it clear, it's not because of my extensive experience of proselytizing to uh, Ethiopian eunuchs, uh, but the rest of it will hopefully become clear. I think for a lot of people, one of the biggest challenges that they can often face in church on a Sunday or in Bible studies in their home groups or in their faith in general can actually be this, the Bible. It's big, it's long. It was written over hundreds, thousands of years ago and compiled hundreds of years ago. It's full of weird stuff going on, using language that can seem strange, incomprehensible, alien to many people. It can feel full of contradictions, inconsistencies. And yet this is the most important book ever written. It contains everything we need to understand about why it's important to have faith in God and to have assurances in his promises. And when we struggle to understand what's going on in a passage in the Bible that we happen to be reading or hearing preached on in church, we can feel like complete outsiders. We might think that everyone else around us seems to clearly understand what's going on in this passage, what's being talked about. So why are we struggling? Imagine how a person who's never read the Bible before, hearing it for the first time, would feel. Anyone feel like they might just identify with an Ethiopian eunuch? Now, I love studying the Bible. Ever since I was doing religious studies A-level, I've just really enjoyed looking into it, getting into the passages. I've always enjoyed preaching on a specific passage from the Bible more than a specific topic. And this passage from Acts, this particular encounter, 
always resonates with me because I love the, the challenge and the privilege to be able to take a passage from the Bible and study it and examine it and try to make it as understandable and accessible to the people that I'm speaking to about the passage as I can and hopefully enable it to influence them or have some impact on them that day. And so today I thought we'd do just that, go on that kind of journey to the passage that I often do when I'm preparing a talk with a good old-fashioned biblical exegesis uh, of this passage to try and understand what's going on. And I'm aware that straight away I'm using language that is not going to make sense to you anyway, using words that can make people feel lost, feel like outsiders. What is an exegesis, I hear you asking yourself frustratingly. The critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. Uh, that's the Merriam-Webster, I think, definition. Anyway, um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to examine this passage, do a critical analysis of it, and see what we can find, see what it's saying to us. So first of all, let's ask the questions. Who was Philip? Uh, well, in chapter 6 of Acts, two chapters before the one we heard earlier, Philip is referred to as one of the seven. Who were the seven? Well, they were seven individuals who the early church had chosen to care for the needs of the Greek-speaking widows of the early church, who some felt were being neglected. Turns out the Jewish-speaking widows were perfectly looked after, the Greek-speaking widows less so. Now, Stephen, a name you might recognize, not just because the vicar of his church, but Stephen, who was stoned to death, um, he was also appointed as one of these seven. And as you can imagine, things don't start out all too well for this group of seven. Stephen is arrested and then stoned to death. Saul begins persecuting the church. And many believers, both men and women, are seized from their homes and thrown into prison. The believers, including this seven, or six as they are now, scatter from Jerusalem, fleeing from the danger they face. And the whole point of that was to try and make this gospel that they're trying to spread the message about die out. But it doesn't. It has the opposite effect. These believers aren't scattered and fearful to not speaking. They're scattered and bring the gospel far and wide to the places they've gone to. Philip is first described as bringing the gospel to the Samaritans. And now, as we've heard in recent talks, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were like their, their worst enemies and just happened to be their kind of neighbors. And yet this is a key message in the book of Acts and also the Gospel of Luke, who many believe are written by the same author, that outsiders are welcome, even Samaritans. And so here is Philip, preaching the gospel in the surrounding area of Samaria, heading on down to Caesarea, when he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch. Next question, who was the Ethiopian eunuch? The Ethiopian eunuch was probably not actually from what we would now call modern-day Ethiopia. Um, it's most likely from the region that made up of kind of South Egypt, Northern Sudan. Um, and he was effectively the finance minister for the royal court. And he held a very privileged position because of this. Now, he was most likely castrated as a condition of his employment. Uh, so suddenly, that horrible boss at work that you had doesn't seem quite as bad anymore, does he? Um, and this uh, eunuch had been to Jerusalem to worship. 
And so it was quite likely that he was a Gentile Jew. However, because of his defect, um, he wasn't permitted to fully participate in the religious life of practicing Jews. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 categorically states, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. And so that very thing which gave him status and authority and power also made him automatically an outsider in the eyes of many. So that's the question, what's happening here in the passage? Well, the eunuch is reading aloud from the book of Isaiah. Um, now, if you can imagine on your now, morning commute to work or so, someone starts reading loudly from the Times or the tablet, you go, move away from the weirdo. But actually, back in that day, it was quite commonplace to read aloud the passage of Scripture that you were reading. And so Philip, moved by the Holy Spirit, goes up to the chariot the eunuch is riding in, and he asks him, do you understand what it is you're reading? How can I, replies the eunuch, unless someone explains it to me? Wow. What an opportunity for Philip. I remember many years ago when I was young, um, the leader of the particular youth group I was in at the time, when I was probably about seven, eight, nine years old, um, here at Christchurch, I remember one week he was telling us how about how the previous week he'd been on the Walk of Witness, the March of Witness. Uh, and this is where all the churches in Imorden gather together and we have a big walk down the high streets in silence on Good Friday. And then we would gather, uh, usually for an open-air service, I think it was held at St. George's Square at the time. And as the march was approaching the crossroads at the bottom of the high street, someone stopped my youth leader and said, what's going on? Can you tell me what all this is about? And the following week, our youth leader told us this story and said, what an amazing opportunity. But it only became an opportunity because someone asked, what's this all about? Can you explain it to me? Next to the question, what was the Ethiopian eunuch reading? Well, he was reading an incredibly important passage from the book of Isaiah, in chapter 53. And yet it was troubling him. Now, he probably, he could well have been uh, in the temple worshipping, and he was hearing maybe this passage being read as he's reading it on his way back from Jerusalem, thinking, this doesn't make sense to me. He didn't know if the prophet was referring to himself or to somebody else. And so we need to ask, what was the prophet Isaiah talking about? Biblical exegesis on Isaiah chapter 53. Now, we're not going to do a full examination of all the passages, don't worry. But I do I think it's important just to look at a few of the verses from here. Um, Isaiah 53 is one of the most quoted parts of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And this chapter and the verses preceding it make up what is kind of described as the final revelation in the book of Isaiah about the coming Messiah as this ministering, suffering servant. It speaks vividly about the Lord God sending his servant, Jesus, to bear our sins and suffer in our place. And when you read through some of the verses, it's incredibly powerful and incredibly indicting, I feel, of us all. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he 
was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The use of the first person pronouns throughout that section is quite something. Now, everything that happened to the suffering servant was in fact what should have happened to us. Now, the section that the Ethiopian eunuch was troubled by is pure prophecy. It foretells the events around the death of Jesus that we know so well from the Easter story. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as the sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It's a bit odd, this talking about a lamb, but when we now think of what happened, think of Jesus not responding to the charges of the Sanhedrin or at his trial, not answering the questions asked by Pilate and Herod. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Jesus brought out along with Barabbas. And the crowd could have cried for Jesus to be freed. But instead, they cried for Barabbas to be freed. And Jesus was crucified to death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, even though Jesus' burial was arranged by Joseph of Arimathea, who's described as a righteous man, Joseph thought he was doing the right thing by having Jesus buried amongst the wealthy. And yet for many people, particularly in the older times, this would not have been seen as a place of honour, because the Bible often associated the rich with wickedness, because their wealth was often acquired through oppression or dishonesty. And so with all this crazy imagery and description of God punishing his servant for our sins, the Ethiopian eunuch is probably feeling like this is going way over his head. And he has no idea who the prophet is talking about. Fortunately, Philip is on hand to explain it all to him, to tell him how that passage is actually talking all about Jesus who had so recently lived and died and rose and risen to life again. And so Philip explains all of that to the Ethiopian eunuch. Next question, what's the outcome of all of this? The Ethiopian eunuch wants to get baptized. He wants forgiveness of sins. He wants eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on his way rejoicing, hopefully even bringing the message of the gospel back to that royal household. It's a wonderful encounter and a really encouraging, positive episode in the Bible, especially like following on from the tragic events of the stoning to death of Stephen. This, message, this passage shows us once again that outsiders are welcome to God and that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, breaks down all social, racial and ethnic barriers and yet it was only possible because someone explained it to a person who couldn't understand it all 
Philip is described as suddenly disappearing, and he appears down the road in Azotus, preaching and sharing the good news with all the surrounding area until he finally reaches the Caesarea. And that is the last time we hear about Philip until the end of Acts, some estimated 20 years later. By then, he appears to have stayed in Caesarea. He has four unmarried daughters who are all described as prophesying, just as the prophet Joel spoke about many years when he said, and afterwards I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And amongst all this, it's Philip who has done so much by going and spreading the good news and helping people understand what it is they're reading or hearing. When you open this to read it, do you ever feel like an outsider at times? Perhaps struggling to understand what it is you're reading? You're not alone, but you definitely don't need to feel like an outsider. Uh, one of the ways you know, used to get young people excited about reading bits of the Bible um, was to do something called sword drill. Now, has anyone here ever experienced the joys of sword drill? Um, basically, what you did was you, everyone had their Bible, they held it in the air, uh, probably a good news Bible when you were young, run the NIV, and uh, the person leading would say, right, I want you to look up, and he'd give you a particular passage, and you'd quickly find it, and you know, if you're really clever, you knew where to look in the Bible, otherwise everyone goes to bed and goes, where on earth is Philemon? Got, no, it's Philippians. And so, finally, the person who found the passage being asked would have the, like, the reward of standing up and reading it out and hopefully not mucking up any of the difficult words or um, names or places. And I was really hoping that we could do this this morning because I wanted us to look up uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Unfortunately, of course, we got rid of all the Bibles in church because we do everything on the screen. And of course, yeah, you could use a smartphone, but I think generally most people just now just hold up an iPhone and go, Siri, read out 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. It's hardly a challenge. Now, I'm just checking to make sure Siri hasn't just activated on people's iPhones. That's cool. Great. Um, but yeah, if you, we had, we'd have got to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and you'd find it says this. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. One of the things that really strikes me about that verse are the words which you heard from us. It always relies on people understanding the gospel, the Bible, God's word, from hearing it from others, through teaching, through then maybe asking questions, through studying it with Bible commentaries to help them. You know, books specifically written to help you understand different parts of the Bible. Now, the reason my Bible is so ridiculously big compared to a standard church one is because this is a commentary Bible. It's almost every single verse has some explanation in it telling me what's happening, helping me understand more of what is being said and what's been written and why. When you hear people like myself or Stephen or Katie or Ruth or any of the other preachers here at Christchurch who have the privilege to speak to you on a Sunday morning, you, know, you might ask yourself, 
How do they know these things? How do they understand all this? Well, the truth is, often, I don't. But so many other people have spent so much time looking at the Bible in a literal and literary and historical and sociological context and then written about their findings that it can help me understand greater what's being said. And if you're not being helped to understand it all, then there's a chance you might find yourself thinking, why don't I just seem to understand what's been written in the Bible like surely everyone else around me does? I guess I'm not really a proper Christian. How can I be? That should never be the case. I remember a few years ago, I was helping out one evening at a youth outreach event over the roads in our old parish halls. It was like a Thursday evening. And um, myself and a couple of the other youth leaders were talking to some of the young people who turned up that evening about our faith and about what we believed in and the difference it made in our lives. And I remember one of them asking us, how do you know all this stuff? How do you know this? How do you understand it all? And one of the other youth leaders, uh, wasn't attached to this church, but he was there, um, somewhat unhelpfully said, you know, well, when you become a Christian, God puts these things on your heart. I was like, I don't think that's strictly true, or at least not in some like, automatic sense. Like, well done, you said a prayer, your sins are forgiven. Now receive the gift of all biblical knowledge and wisdom. That doesn't happen like that. I'm pretty sure that I learned about God and Jesus and forgiveness and sacrifice and salvation through the fantastic teaching I received here every week at Christchurch when I was a young person and on the summer camps that I used to go on and then through reading the Bible with study notes and commentaries and listening to sermons and discussions with other leaders and other people in church and vicars. And so if you're ever feeling like a bit of an outsider when it comes to the Bible, or understanding certain aspects of the Christian faith. Don't wait for this knowledge to magically come to you. Ask for help. Question what you're hearing. Challenge it. It's great when people, I don't think someone like Vashti Prescott uh, was someone who would often come up to me after a service and go, yep, great talk to him, but didn't have a clue what you were talking about there, or didn't really understand that thing you were talking about. And that's great, because it forces me to think, yeah, do I properly understand what I was talking about? What's a different way I can try and explain this complicated like, concept or passage from the Bible? And we can then talk it through and find better ways of understanding things. Or maybe you might want to say to Stephen, you know, it would be great if we could look at these topics and these particular topics in more in, uh, more in depth during the Sunday School for Grown-Up sessions. And one other thing, though, that you can always do, and possibly the most important thing, before you read the Bible, before hearing the Word of God in sermons and in church, is to pray, to ask God to help you understand something, to speak directly to you through the passage you're reading or studying or being spoken to on, to show you why it's relevant to you today, and to, hope, and to give you the opportunities to ask for more input if you need it. And so let's do that now. Let's pray. Lord God, 
Your word is a light to us, a lamp to us. It is the truth. It is what makes us Christians. It is what makes a difference in our lives. And Lord, sometimes we struggle to understand it. So Father, we ask that when we study the Bible, you will help us. Help us to understand your word. You'll give us opportunities to seek assistance if we need it, to seek guidance. And so we can feel and know and hear your word speaking to us today, as relevant now as it has been over thousands of years. Help us in the opportunities we have to share the Bible with others, giving us the words and the wisdom to share the good news with others, to help them understand the difference it can make in their lives. Lord, we thank you for your Bible, for your words. May it inspire us, govern us, lead us, change us. In your name we pray.